Christine. And I'm Alan. We'd like to thank you for tuning in to our discussion this week. Our hope is that we'll share some information that you'll find helpful. So now we invite you to join us as we together listen listen for for the the word. word. Hi, everybody, and welcome to our podcast today. We are working um, through Eastertide, and uh, we are in John 21, verses 1 through 19. This is um, this passage you may not know quite as well, but where Jesus is out um, with the disciples who are fishing. It's one of the resurrection, resurrection appearances. So let's just jump into this, uh, Alan, and kind of put it in some context for us. Thanks, Christy. Yeah. You know, as we mentioned last year, during the season of Easter, the common lectionary tends to work in passages from John's gospel. And of course, last week we looked at the story of Jesus' post-resurrection appearance to the disciples, initially without Thomas and then with him. And now this week, the third Sunday in Easter, we look at the account of Jesus' appearance to the disciples who were fishing on the Sea of Galilee. Now, I want to issue a correction because I misspoke a couple of weeks ago when I said that both Luke and John center everything in Jerusalem. While John does have the initial appearances in Jerusalem. John's gospel concludes with this story about his appearance in Galilee, and so that's something we have to take into account. And of course, as you look at this, and our reformers looked at this later on, they actually questioned this last tag in Galilee. Mm. So I think I think it's fair to even have that that question mark. Was John himself really focusing on Jerusalem? In, in well, and you know, obviously, um, I think the the editors of the final form of the Gospel of John would would be aware that there was a tradition of a Galilean appearance mm-hmm. in the Gospel tradition, and there may have been some some. You know, that may have been part of what led them to incorporate this um, into uh, their gospel as well. There is a sense in which this whole chapter seems to be out of place in John's gospel. Mm -hmm. And for that many reason, for for that reason, many have concluded that it is an epilogue added to the gospel Mm -hmm. by the final editors. And again, when I'm referring to the editors, I'm talking about the we. Right. Of we know right. that his testimony is true right. in John twenty one twenty four. This is this is the beloved disciple, and and he's the one who's wrote the, has written these things. And we know that his testimony is true. So whoever's putting the gospel in its right. final form is someone other than the beloved disciple. And I want to, you know, I, I usually keep this for my section, but the reformers actually noticed this too, and I was super super impressed that they began to question that authorship of that last part. Mm-hmm. Um, so even their kind of scriptural analysis that they'd begun to do, uh, began to question it even back in the 16th well, century. Well, and you know, the, the, the question, for example, the question of the authorship of the Johannine materials in, in the New Testament is one that goes back even to the second century mm. because a, a lot of, um, you know, there, there was a lot of question about the authorship right. of Revelation. Right, and right. And so, you know, there are there, there have been some 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 discussions right. about that. There have been people throughout the history of the church who've discussed this. Right, well, and, and think... You know, going back to our reformers, once the once it was part of the canon, they tended not to question mm-hmm. authorship. Mm-hmm. Um, they kind of accepted that that work had been done. So to mm-hmm. go back there is really, I mean, this was really kind of a big step, and they didn't all do it. But yeah. there were a couple scholars that did, and I just thought that was a remarkable kind of modern twist, you know, that they had given it. So sure. yes, I know this, and I think everybody does, but but the 
they rarely question that canon once it's in sure. place. And I, I've tended to follow Jerome in, in that regard because Jerome was well aware of questions of authorship. And, you know, that was one of the initial criteria uh, for inclusion in the canon was whether, whether a right. document was considered to be written by an apostle. Jerome was aware of some of these questions around the authorship of various documents, and he, but his approach was the church has accepted it uh, as authoritative, and I right. have no position to change right. that. Right, exactly. I'm, I'm paraphrasing. Yeah. And, yeah. and so that's the way I look at these questions of authorship yeah. and questions of composition. You know, these days we can look at questions of composition maybe a little more carefully than, than some in the early church have done. That doesn't mean I, I'm advocating tossing it out of the canon right. by any means. No, yeah. no, and certainly the uh, reformers didn't either, but I do think, I just think this is an interesting um, and important that the, the I think people tend to look at scripture today like, you know, God said it, there it is in front of me, mm. not realizing mm. that the, this whole whole question of scriptural integrity has been there since the big early church. Surely, surely. Um, and we know that when they put the, the scriptures together, when they decided what's in, what's not in, um, all the way continues through. And again, the reformers particularly are one of the groups that begin this process again. Mm-hmm. Um, so an interesting, uh, yeah. just an interesting thing. Yeah. yeah. Now, one of the main reasons why this passage, this chapter seems out of place is that John 20, 30 to 31 really serves as a kind of conclusion mm-hmm. to gospel, the gospel of John, you know, and, and John says, John 20, 30, 31 says, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his mm-hmm. disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the son of God, and that through believing you may have life in right. his name. That seems to be a conclusion mm-hmm. to the gospel. Um, uh, furthermore, as Bultmann noted, it seems strange that after receiving the Holy Spirit and their commission to ministry, as they did in John 20, 21 through 31, you know, Jesus mm-hmm. basically, you know, says, as the Father has sent me, so I send you. And then he says, receive the Holy Spirit. Mm-hmm. You know, and so the idea, it says that he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. So the idea is in John's gospel, you know, this is the impartation of the Holy Spirit mm-hmm. to the disciples for the for the empowerment of their ministry. And so, and so I think Bultmann is 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 on onto something here when he notes that after receiving the Holy Spirit and their commission to ministry, they would return to fishing. That seems strange. Mm-hmm. So you know, in fact. Um, the account of John 21 has seemed so out of place that some have suggested it may recount an original appearance uh, to Peter that was, you know, basically it wasn't in the original, sort of the maybe the first edition of the Gospel of John, mm-hmm. but that the editors, because there was such a strong tradition in the early church and in the Could Gospel be. tradition about an original appearance to Peter. Yeah. In other words, Peter right. was the first one right. to receive a resurrect, post-resurrection appearance of Jesus. Right. Because there was that tradition in the church, they felt the need to, to, to include this in, in, uh, their, in John's Gospel. It, that's really interesting. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I, I will say when when I read it, I did notice the difference in mm-hmm. in how it stands out. So maybe mm-hmm. you can give us some detail about that. Yeah, well, and and the opening of this narrative is worded in a way that also makes it stand out. It says that after these things, Jesus showed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, mm-hmm. and the verb for showing himself is phanerao, uh, which could, could could be translated reveal. 
Uh, and it's used in a variety of ways in John's gospel. There are some places where, you know, so for example, in, in, the, in the wedding feast of Cana, you know, when it says that Jesus revealed his glory by, by turning the water into wine, um, the, the verb is phanerao there. Mm. Um, Lo and Nida in their Greek-English lexicon of the New Testament according to semantic domains categorize the verb with words of sight and seeing and suggest that it be translated appear, which Mm. seems to me to be a lesser kind of significance than reveal. Mm -hmm. Reveal, I think, has a little more loaded theological content. I I think so. Uh Now, in favor of this translation is that it gives chapter 21 more consistency with chapter 20 where seeing plays an important mm-hmm. role with, with Thomas, especially, right? right? But given the use of the verb in the rest of the New Testament, especially in 1 John, and, and while, while I will say, you know, it's hard to know what the precise connection between John's gospel and 1 John is regarding, to, regarding authorship and composition, there are clear thematic and theological connections mm. between John's gospel and, and 1 John. But in 1 John, it refers to Jesus' revelation using phanerao mm-hmm. at the parousia at the return and so mm-hmm. um it, it's a word that has some significant import in that context and so in light of that i would prefer to say that he revealed himself here and so i would say after g after these things jesus revealed himself again to the mm-hmm. disciples by the sea of, of tiberius especially since in this connection uh, you know the, the word is used with a, for a post-resurrection mm-hmm. appearance now the English Bible traditions are divided between translating this appear and reveal. And I think the new RSV showed himself as an attempt at a middle way, perhaps. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the editors of the gospel are so intent on making this point that they repeat it. And he showed himself or he revealed himself in this way. So this is significant. You know, they're, they're seeing this as a revelation. Jesus is revealing himself mm-hmm. to his, to his disciples. Interesting. Well, um, you know, I think it's interesting and a, a couple things that they didn't recognize him again. So this there's something right, about right. there's something about revelation in I see him, I don't know who it is, and now I do. Mm-hmm. That it's hard to process. Um, another thing that I saw um, is that the, the, some of the names here we're not as familiar with. Mm-hmm. Um, so these are different. Are are these different disciples? What's going on? No, I would I would say these are still some of the original twelve. There, okay. but um, the, you're right. I mean, Nathaniel of Cana is not somebody that we that we we hear of much uh, in the Gospels. Mm-hmm, exactly. Um, I, I will say, um, yeah, the 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 whole thing about the disciples not recognizing Jesus seems strange in light of you know the the preceding. Uh, appearance mm-hmm. of Jesus to them in John chapter 20. And so that's another reason why this, this chapter seems a little out of place. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It does. It does. But now before narrating how Jesus revealed himself, the editors set the stage gathered there together were Simon, Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee and two others of his disciples. And Simon, Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. And they said, we'll go with you. And they went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. And as we saw before, the only other narrative about fishing all night without catching anything is found in Luke chapter 5, verses 1 through 11, which is the call narrative of Jesus' disciples right. in Luke's well, gospel. Exactly. Well, So yeah. it's kind of strange that it happens at the beginning of, of Luke's gospel and it comes at the end of John's gospel. Right. Is that the same? <laughs> I mean, is that kind of the same story being retold, or is this John intentionally reaching back to 
what's known of Luke's gospel. It's, so it's, people it's are hard to say. I mean, it. I think some of these some of these traditions may have floated around without a particular context, mm-hmm. and the gospel writers made use of them as they saw fit. Uh, that make that makes sense to me as well. Yeah. Um, so let's 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 keep going ahead in this. Why you know why did they fish? Yeah, and you know, part of it is that not none of this makes much sense in light of what we've seen in John chapter twenty. You know, where in verses twenty-one through twenty-three, um, Jesus breathes on them and imparts the Holy Spirit to them, gives them their commission. You know, he sends them out in his name, or or John twenty twenty-nine, which talks about you know, blessed are those who have not seen me and believed. You know, or John twenty thirty thirty-one, where it, where it says that the gospels that the signs written in the the gospels in the gospel of john were, were recorded so that you might believe um you know we cannot really know why these particular disciples decided to go fishing or even in the context of john's gospel what they're doing in galilee because john right. 20 concludes with them in jerusalem right so we must ask why the editors of the gospel felt the need to add this chapter to what seems to have been a completed mm-hmm. gospel narrative and there are two clues I think. First, it would seem that there was a felt need to explicitly and specifically resolve Peter's status as a commissioned disciple of Jesus. Now, you know, John 20, 19 through 23 has already said, you know, it, 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 it doesn't single out Peter, but it just says the disciples. He met with the disciples. He imparted the Holy Spirit to them. He commissioned them. He sent them out uh, as, as he had been sent out. And so we should assume, I think, that Peter was was present for that general commissioning. Um, so somehow there seems to have been, though, a felt need to address Peter's status because of his denials of Jesus. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and also there was a concern, I think, to bring the fourth gospel into line with the tradition of an appearance of Jesus to Peter. But there was also a concern to address the beloved disciple, although it's not part of our passage for today. Um, you know, um, we're going to see that, that, that the beloved disciple plays an important role at the end of chapter 21. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And although he's clearly among the group that went fishing, the, the addition of the unnamed two others makes it impossible to identify him with certainty. This is something that's important because most conservative New Testament scholars will, will use the references to the beloved disciple and the, and the, and the two sons of Zebedee to say, this has to be John, the son right. of Zebedee. Yeah. Yeah. That's and, and kind of the assumption out there. It is. I mean, I mean, That's, if you talk with people in your churches, they'll often say, oh, it's so-and-so. They right, already know who right. that is. Yeah. Uh, the, 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 the references to the beloved disciple, though, in, in John's gospel make it impossible to identify precisely mm-hmm. who that, that person is. And, and here, especially, the, un, the addition of the unnamed two others uh, contributes toward that. Right, right. And I think that, you know, that was kind of my question going back to um, um, – the whole thing about which disciples are these, you know, mm-hmm. because they're not named here. Mm-hmm. I mean, oh, and there's two others. Well, John is so specific in some cases. Yep, and then that's right. Kind of vague. Right. And even this whole beloved disciple it, has it, this vagueness about it. It may have been an intentional ambiguity because there, you know, it seems like that, that John, John's gospel is intentional about not re- naming who the beloved disciple is, not revealing who, who the identity of, of who this, who this disciple is. Yeah. Well, I may be going way out on a tangent, but you know, I, already by this point, there's, um, you know, people, you know, 
it's somewhat dangerous to be a Christian, mm-hmm. right? Well, there are um, localized pers- persecutions going exactly, on. Exactly, localized persecutions. So there may be some purpose, mm-hmm. reason why right. John is being a little bit covert and is trying to not get, reveal too many details to those who would be opposed to the church. I don't know, but yeah. I think it's an interesting question. Yeah. yeah. The the editors of the gospel, I think, though, uh, include um, this passage, this chap- chapter 21, because they're determined to make it clear that the witness of the fourth gospel was based on his testimony. Uh, that's John 21, 24. And, um, you know, again, you know, I, I, f- I feel most comfortable. I mean, when I'm preaching, I'll say John's gospel. Mm-hmm. I don't say John. I say John's gospel. Interesting. Because the form that we have is not from the original author. The form that we have is from the we of mm-hmm. John 21, 24. And so, you know, um, I, I think, you know, the reasons for focusing on the beloved disciples' testimony may be speculated about, but I think we should just simply concentrate on the fact that this is part of the motivation of the chapter to establish that the beloved disciple, who was one of the 12, the one who's, on whose testimony the fourth gospel was mm-hmm, was mm-hmm, composed. Right. And, and so that's an important point that John 21 is trying to make. Mm-hmm. So these, these are the two, I think, motivations why we have this epilogue in John's gospel is to sort of rehabilitate Peter's status as a disciple of Jesus and then also to make it clear that the basis for the, the gospel is the testimony of the beloved disciple. And it's that's really, really interesting to think that in these, in these verses really have so much weight in terms of um, kind of affirming Peter and affirming, again, authorship. Really interesting stuff. Okay, mm-hmm. moving on. So after a night of fishing, John's gospel tells us that just after daybreak, Jesus stood on the beach, but the disciples did not know it was Jesus. And again, the failure to recognize Jesus reminds us of Mary Magdalene's encounter at the tomb where she thinks Mm -hmm. he's a gardener and then he reveals himself. Uh, It's also reminiscent of the encounter with the two disciples on the road to Emmaus Mm -hmm. in Luke 24. That, but the notice that this happened just after daybreak also, I think, reminds me mm-hmm. of the empty tomb yeah, narrative so because all of them, including John's gospel, say that that, that happened you know, early in, in the morning. Mm-hmm. So I think these hints set the, set the reader up for what is to come. That that would you know sort of point toward in it. There are clues that point toward the fact that we're going to see another post-resurrection appearance of Jesus. Yeah, very interesting. And I picked up on all those. Um all this kind of references to this, the tradition as a whole. As you said, some of this may have been, mm-hmm. some of this may have been just kind of in in the culture. So John right. takes it and is able to encapsulate right. it here. That's right. really, right. really interesting. Okay, so um, what happens with this fishing? So then John's gospel continues by telling us that Jesus said to them, "Children, have you no? You have no fish, have you?" And they answered, "No." And the story continues with, he said to them, cast the net to the right side of the boat and you'll find some. No, they don't know it's Jesus yet. No, right? they don't know so it's Jesus. So this is just some dude. They just, yeah, they don't know, <laughs> right? Right? And then, so it's interesting that they do. They just go ahead and cast yeah, it. I mean, I mean, it's like they just they just okay. obey him. Yeah, yeah it's, it's interesting. Very, that is interesting. It's you almost wonder if they're just kind of in a depressive coma and they're just like whatever. Yeah, yeah you don't even out. you don't even have the master we've labored all night. You know, part in the Luke in the Lucan version of this story. It's right. it's just they just they just went ahead and cast it over to the other side, yeah. and now they're not able to hold it in because there were so many fish. And again, I, I, again, this reminds us of the catch of fish yes. at the initial calling of the disciples in Luke chapter five. Mm-hmm. 
Now, although there is no previous narrative to this effect in John's gospel, somehow that disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it is the Lord. Mm -hmm. Um, So again, it seems that this epilogue is meant to emphasize the role of the beloved disciple in the fourth Mm -hmm. gospel. Uh, You know, we'd heard in John chapter 20 that it was Peter and the beloved disciple who raced to the tomb. And although Peter saw the burial cloths and didn't understand, it, it said that the beloved disciple saw and believed. So again, mm-hmm. you know, the, the role of the beloved disciple is highlighted in, in, these, in this part of, of John's gospel. So the story continues then with Peter clothing himself and swimming to shore mm-hmm. while the others dragged the net full of fish to shore with the boat. And, and, and very, yeah, very interesting, you know, and, and uh, the um, beloved disciple, and it is the Lord, and it, I do, do hearken back a little bit to Mary mm-hmm. Magdalene at the tomb, seeing mm-hmm. Jesus as well, you know, and I know there's been ideas out there that maybe Mary what herself was that, that disciple that Jesus loved. Right, right. Um, and I know that goes, there's a, a long way off with that, but, um, and, and a whole whole series of thoughts about it but you know it's an interesting it's an interesting idea sure when you talk about the beloved disciple sure Sure. um um okay um so continuing on yeah the next scene then reports jesus the disciples meeting with jesus by the shore of the sea of galilee and although john's gospel tells us there was a charcoal fire there with fish on it and bread nevertheless jesus told them to bring some of the fish that you have just caught and I think, in my opinion, you know, there's a lot been made out of out of the fish and the number of the fish, 153 large fish. There's a lot of things that have been made out of, out of that over the history of the church. It's but very I, specific. Yeah. I mean, it's it's like weird specific. I, I just think though <laughs> that this is this is. The, the, the intention behind this was so that they could recount that Peter hauled the net ashore and that it was full of 153 large fish. And this is one of the one of the specific details that the that John's gospel is fond of you find this kind of attention to specific details um in in John's gospel in general and uh, you and I've mentioned before when we've talked about John's gospel there are passages where you know the other gospels are very vague and ambiguous mm-hmm. and John is very specific about timing and place and things like this and I, I see that in that connection I don't really see that that there is some allegorical meaning or some theological meaning behind the number 153. I'm sure it's that's just, been done. Oh, though, it's been done uh, over beyond, and over and, beyond, and over and beyond. over and over. Yeah. You almost, you almost wonder if in oral tradition it became part of a some kind of a, a, a musical trope or something, and so it was just. Well, you know, some people have tried to try to get into numerology and all of that, but the but the problem is it would make it you know. Uh, just incomprehensible to the audience of the gospel unless mm-hmm. they were in on the in on the secret so to speak well, yeah 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 no I, I i guess i was thinking in terms of just some kind of um, that it just came down in pop culture that mm-hmm. way and not as mm-hmm. anything specific but other than just something people remember I, it's hard I, to say i think there were 153 large fish in the net and, well, and that and some and somehow the gospel tradition recorded just that. recorded it yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah there you go yeah now, although Jesus did not eat any food himself, and, and I contrast this to Luke 24 last year in verses 42 and 43, when we looked at Luke 24, we saw that the risen Christ 
the risen Christ ate a piece of boiled broiled fish in their presence. Mm-hmm. Jesus doesn't eat any food here, but he invited them to eat. And John's gospel says that none of the disciples dared to ask him, who are you? Because they knew it was the mm-hmm. Lord. And this reminds me of the way in which the disciples responded to Jesus' passion predictions in the synoptic narratives. Although here they didn't ask because they knew it was Jesus. There they didn't ask because they didn't understand. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So then John's gospel concludes, therefore, that this was now the third time that Jesus appeared or revealed healed himself to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. And and so if we count, you know, uh, unfortunately, the editors aren't counting Mary Magdalene's, uh, the appearance to Mary Magdalene. He's counting the appearances yeah. to the disciples. Yeah, yeah. And so we had the first appearance in John 20 without Thomas. We had the second appearance a week later in John 20 with, with Thomas. And now this is the third appearance. Mm-hmm that the editors of John's gospel want to point, call attention to. Mm, Okay. So then we move on. Yeah. And so, you know, the next section really seems to be part of the real reason for this epilogue. And that is to resolve the status of Peter as a disciple of Jesus after he had publicly disowned Jesus. Now, although Jesus had already commissioned the disciples by saying, as the Father has sent me, so I sent you in John 20, 21, it would seem that Peter's threefold denial of Jesus created a felt need on the part of the editors of the fourth gospel for Peter to be re- rehabilitated as a commissioned disciple specifically. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, there's this, this is interesting. We, we move to Peter. Yeah, this yeah. The scene, the scene shifts here, and the focus is entirely on Peter. And the context is left ambiguous as to whether this dialogue takes place between Jesus and Peter alone, as mm-hmm. some biblical scholars think, or whether the others are still present. And we're not really okay, given any, any information mm-hmm. to be able to mm-hmm. make that decision. That is, that is an interesting discussion, though, because we aren't given it, and yet it if it's done in front of the others, it kind of elevates. Peter. I think so. I'm, well, I, but I think it. I think it makes it more meaningful. Mm-hmm. You know, because obviously, the church was aware of this tradition of Peter's denials. You know, perhaps we could say that the other apostles knew of Peter's denials. I mean, I'm sure Peter would not have would not have. Um, hesitated to admit that he to to confess that he denied christ right right but um uh, so you know if if it takes place with the others still present it almost makes it a more powerful scene Mm, really interesting interesting yeah so let's what what happens with with these with jesus's response to peter so the episode here consists of jesus asking peter three times and i think three times is undoubtedly corresponding to peter's three denials do you love me And Jesus begins by asking Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? In verse 15. Now, the these, more than these, is ambiguous, and there have been a lot of of, uh, efforts to try to explain what this meant. But I think when taken in light of Peter's profession that he would lay down his life for Jesus— and that's John 13, Mm -hmm. 37. And in, in Matthew and Mark, he says, even though all others may forsake Jesus, he would still lay down his life for him, implying he loved Jesus more than any of the other disciples did. I think it becomes clear then that more than these means more than the mm-hmm. other disciples loved me. I think that's the point of which, this. Which is which is interesting because we have that disciple whom Jesus loved who right, wrote this, right? right so this right. is kind of a strange, yeah. um, it, it seems to be, to me, to be an emphasis um, again, on 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 how much on that denial and that kind of of 
like regaining that, I don't know, reclaiming that true love that he has for mm-hmm. Jesus because it's that sense of, look, I'm giving you this opportunity to... Um, right. To, to reaffirm to your, reaff- your, your commitment yeah, to me. Yeah yeah, 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 yeah. Absolutely, absolutely. So then, you know, as, as almost everybody will know, m- much has been made of the alternation of agapao and phileo in this passage. Jesus asked Peter, do you love me, using the verb agapao? Mm-hmm. And Peter replies, you know that I love you, using the verb phileo. And the idea has been that Jesus asks whether Peter loves Jesus as Jesus loved him, and Peter replies that he loves him as a friend. And, you know, I, you know, C.S. Lewis famously wrote the book The Four Loves and made the distinction between the four different kind mm-hmm. words for love in, in, in the Greek uh, language. You know, to some extent, there is something behind that, but to make that a hard and fast distinction is just bad linguistics. It just doesn't work that way. Uh, it makes too much of the alternation of words. And the simple fact is that, especially in John's gospel, agapao and phileo are often used interchangeably, mm-hmm. and they both simply mean love. I think this period, is, end of discussion, nothing further, no further qualification, just except love. Except that I want to highlight it because I think this is something that's, I hear so many sermons about this. I know. I hear so many of our people in the congregation really they go believe out, this. out of their way to make this big difference between this. And so I want to point this out because this is where I really feel like Alan's expertise comes out because he understands, he studied the language so much, he understands how it works and and it's just and, and it's just not the way the language works I, you know all you need is a concordance and all you have to do is you can find plenty of passages where agapao and phileo are used interchangeably right, right. so so they both simply mean love that's just not the love. point right. of what's going on yes here. yes it's not about <laughs> jesus loves in a way that is sacrificial and you know he demonstrates it by laying his life down and peter recognizes the inadequacy of his love but nevertheless jesus accepts that well, that's not the point here. I think that, you know, here, here's the reality, though. I think I think people tend to do this when they're doing their sermons because they think it makes them sound really smart, like they've really studied the Greek right. and really understand this right. nuance. Right. And guess what? It's not here. No. It's not here. No. It, it is, that is a fallacy. That That is a linguistic fallacy to, to press that. And so I would, I would urge you, don't go there, please. It, <laughs> it, because it is pressing the wording too far to say that the reason why Peter was grieved in the third exchange was that Jesus used the verb phileo, do you love me? Peter mm-hmm. instead of agapao. And so, you know, it's it's as if, you know, Peter, Jesus is coming down to Peter's level and saying, okay, Peter, do you love me as a friend? Yeah, yeah, Lord, you know, my love is inadequate. And that's not the point here. Right. It makes much more sense, I think, to see the whole point of this passage and, and, and Peter's grief that Jesus asked him, do you love me the third time related to the fact that Jesus repeated the question three times, which served as a clear reminder of Peter's three denials Mm -hmm, of Jesus. mm -hmm. So the the point of his grief was, you know, he understood what Jesus was doing. You know, Jesus was giving Peter the opportunity to profess his love for him three times in parallel to the three times that he had denied him. And so Peter gets that and, and, and and it's about resolving Peter's grief, I think as much as it is about resolving Peter's status among the group of disciples. I'm really into wholeness right now. Mm -hmm. And I think this is an example of, um, um, returning 
Peter to wholeness. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, because how can you serve Christ when you are still living in the guilt that he would have felt? Exactly. And so this is, I think, I mean, that's my sermon, right? This is that's, a restorative yeah, moment. Exactly. This is a restorative moment. And and I would say there's a gentleness really about mm-hmm. it. Some have seen it as if Jesus is sort of being hard on Peter, but I think there's a gentleness about the fact that basically Jesus understands Peter's grief and he's helping Peter work through his grief related to his denials of Christ by giving him the opportunity to affirm mm-hmm. him, yes, I love you three times in parallel mm-hmm. with the three times mm-hmm. he denied him. Yeah, yeah. That's the point of this passage, not the alternation between agapao and phileo. Ah, uh, yes, yes. So uh, when you pick up your um when you pick up that commentary, uh just 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 ignore all that stuff. <laughs> we see this in history all the time. People are so hungry to to find some new nuance mm-hmm. that they really miss the more important intent. I would say that the best commentaries are going to be in tune with this. Right. They're going to know that no, nah, it's not about agapao versus phileo. Right, it's right. about it's about Jesus giving Peter three opportunities to profess his it, love for him. It, it strikes me as one of those things you would Google and you would come up with. <laughs> you know what I mean? That some of these guys. I'm out sure there, you'll find. I'm sure yeah, you would find lots some, of results on that. Some, and the fact of the matter is, you know, it's we've heard it preached all of our lives. And, and I haven't gone back and traced the specific tradition of this particular theme, but I'm sure it goes back a long way. This is something that didn't just arise, you know, yesterday. It's right. been around for a long yeah. time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So then Jesus' responses to Peter serve as a renewal of his commission, specifically to follow Jesus in service to the community of believers. When Peter responds that he does love Jesus, Jesus tells him, feed my lambs, in verse 15, tend my sheep, in verse 16, and feed my sheep, in verse 17. Now, you know, this isn't going to come as a surprise to you, Christy, but that much has been made over the second commission, tend my sheep. And it's literally poimane tabrobatamu, or shepherd my sheep. Mm-hmm. So the commission is shepherd my sheep. And many, particularly in the Roman Catholic tradition, have taken this as Jesus' appointment of Peter as the shepherd over the church. And you know, there is a place in First Peter where Peter talks about Jesus as the shepherd and guardian of believers' mm-hmm. souls. And so you could see perhaps, um, especially, and they tend to argue based on the Matthew passage where Peter is given the keys of the kingdom, right. um, you know, the, the, put this together to, 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 to make Peter the shepherd over the church. But I would say that Peter saw himself Peter himself saw the task of shepherding the sheep to which Jesus had appointed him as one not only shared with the other disciples, but also by the elders or pastors of the churches. Again, if we look at 1 Peter, in 1 Peter 5, 2, he encourages the pastors he was writing to shepherd the flock of God that is in your charge by being examples to them. And he uses similar language there, poimanate ta poimnion to theu. And instead of sheep, it's the flock. Poimnion mm-hmm. is the flock of God. So shepherd the flock of God among you. And indeed, he points to Christ as the great shepherd, uh, not <laughs> obviously himself, right? Right, right? And so in a very real sense, I would say that Jesus himself in, established the pattern for this pastoral ministry with the way he shepherded Peter in the reconciliation of restoration of Peter that we've just seen. Mm-hmm. And so he's, he's basically commissioning Peter to go and do likewise, essentially. Right, go right. and shepherd uh, the, the flock. Go and shepherd the people of yes. God in the way that, that I have shepherded you. You know, follow my example, essentially. Alan, you sound like Calvin. I know. I love that. 
I love that. That's like some of the observations Calvin will make, and I'll talk about this a little bit more. Obviously, this is something. That, well, and that, as I've said, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Oh no, I was going to say this is something that the reformers obviously are going to are going to combat is this kind of interpretation mm-hmm. of Peter as being, you know, the first pope. And yeah. so I'll talk about how Calvin deals with this in the Institutes a little bit later. But uh, well, and yeah. as I've said before, I mean, my basic approach to biblical exegesis is to interpret the text in light of scripture you know right. and that was that was that was where calvin started now i yeah. I, I tried to go beyond that right but right. but that's still the, sort yeah. of the foundation of my biblical exactly exegesis. isn't yeah. that so isn't that interesting and I, I love to point this out because i think it reminds us how our tradition has grown and expanded and and right. and, and how this has become really important to i think um what the bible tells us and 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 what calvin was and some people want to eschew calvin because they don't agree See with him some as of too the, simplistic yeah or they they haven't read enough of him to understand mm-hmm. really Really the scholar that he was mm-hmm. and um, really how important he is for our tradition today. So that's why I smile when Alan mm-hmm. says something mm-hmm. that sounds kind of Calvin-like. Yeah. <laughs> well, and you know, uh, I, I, in, in a lot of ways, I think there are a lot of things about my biblical exegesis I would like to think that have moved beyond Calvin because we know oh, more course. than Calvin, oh, right? Oh, yeah. But Calvin. I, I too, I love the fact that this, this basic bib principle of biblical exegesis has been around since the beginning exactly. I mean, since the earliest days of the church exactly. and i don't think we have to throw that out i mean we move beyond that right but mm-hmm. that's still the starting it's point. the starting point still but the foundation i think you know i think it's important because i see a lot of pastors in, in some different traditions that are that are flying away from it again mm-hmm. and i think we need to kind of always regroup and come back to this space mm-hmm. and maybe we can talk about that a little, little bit later but um sure let's let's finish this out how does jesus end so the final statement of jesus is quite an unusual one very truly i tell you when you were younger you used to fasten your own belt and go wherever you wish but when you grow old you will stretch out your hands and someone else will fasten a belt around you and take you where you do not wish to go now you know just on the surface of things you could t- take that as a statement about anybody who ages right <laughs> because you know right. you have to be you have to be cared for but the editors of john's gospel offer another of their interpretive asides and we've seen this before mm-hmm. when we've looked at john's gospel that they tend to offer these interpretive yeah. asides to help the reader understand in verse 19 he said this to indicate the kind of death by which he would glorify god so it seems that there's something going on in this statement more than meets the eye it's more than just someone's going to lead you around because you can't see to find your own way or you'll be too feeble mm-hmm. some have even suggested that this is kind of a uh, almost a, um, a a prediction of G- of peter being crucified i don't know that we can i don't know that we can get that specific about it but um you know there's there's simply there's ample details about you know, ample debate about the details of the prophecy about Peter's death, but I think it's just sufficient to note that the the time frame for the final version of John's gospel, uh, written by the we, the editorial we, was long after Peter's death in the mid '60s, and that the Johannine community was undoubtedly familiar with Peter's martyrdom. Oh yeah, and so the editors basically here are supplying a rationale for Peter's martyrdom. Mm-hmm. They're not only rehabilitating him as a disciple, but they're also supplying right. a rationale for Peter's martyrdom. Right. his death in this manner was to glorify god which you know we saw already that was that was the purpose of jesus death right so so uh, i think that's that's really what's going on here is that they're they're trying to help the the christian community come to terms with peter's death and that this was the purpose of it yeah this makes sense thanks christy
My friends, we're back, and we're going to shift gears now and take a look at what the Reformers have to say about this passage. So uh, tell us what you found, Christy. Sure, and I inserted a little bit of this information earlier on, but the first thing was this questioning of the authorship of the chapter, uh, chapter, this um, this last piece. And I um, we talked about that earlier, but it's just a really important part for the emergence of what becomes the modern church and who we are today as the church, that mm-hmm. we have to continue to be um, regular critics of, of Scripture, of, of, of what we learn, of what we find, of, of um, looking at the exegesis, of looking at Scripture um, in terms of Scripture, which, as we've already talked about, but... Um, you know, Heinrich Bullinger actually questions whether this added piece is the same author, and we talked about about that before, as well. But um, well, and you know, to me, you know, there there's some people out there who will say that this kind of study of the Bible tears down the Scripture, and you know, to me, I don't see it as tearing down the Scripture because it's really more paying close attention to the details of what you find in the Scripture. Mm, I agree. And, and the church has, has always done that. As I said, there, there are people going back to the second century. Jerome did it, mm-hmm. um, I'm, you know, and, and Calvin did it to some extent and other reformers. It, it's really more about trying to really understand the history behind the Bible as best we can. Right. And, you know, we have to say as best we can in there right. because we recognize that, uh, you know, I, I can't know a lot of these things for certain. Exactly. But this is what, it, this is what the evidence seems to point this to. This is what it points to. Well, and the breadth. And I think this is so important because we are in an age now, we're moving back to this kind of literalism, taking, mm-hmm. taking little pieces of the scripture out of context and then quoting them and laying them in your face. And I just think you do such a disservice to the scripture that way. And it's not meant to be used that way, but it's meant to be studied and it's meant to prompt us to, um, to continue to question. And so that the reformers are doing this, Mm -hmm. I just think is a really important step for us to take. And remember, this is part of, as Alan said, prior to the Reformation, but you even hear folks today going, we're trying to go back to the true Reformation church. I hear that all the time. (laughs) I want to be the true Presbyterian church. Well, guess what? The true Presbyterian church recognizes Mm -hmm. that there's questioning that goes on. Yeah, they think of of the the true Presbyterian church as some sort of doctrinaire reading of Calvin and a very literalistic approach to the Bible. Which Calvin himself says... You have to question. You mm-hmm. know, we talked about that last week. We, you have to question. So um, that's part of that's part of who we are as yep. as, as Presbyterians. So moving on, um, then they all turn to the fishing, <laughs> and um, they all seem to agree um, um, that they um, went back because this is something they knew. They they fished before. They fish now. So I think there was kind of the thought thought of oh. You know, Jesus has come and Jesus has died and they're transformed. But the, the reformers are suggesting that, no, these, these disciples go back to what they were doing before. That's what they knew. Um, and, uh, but then there's this sense of, um, in, that, in what they were doing, it's that they realized they couldn't do it the way they had before, that their lives had changed, and that they ultimately would have to rely on Christ for their labor. So this is an interesting thing. So a, a, a piece called the English Annotations, this is a Puritan piece, um, um, is pretty poignant. 
All human labor and endeavor is in vain unless God blesses it with success. Mm, mm. So what an interesting place. And yet they go out there and they have no success on their own. So it's not until Jesus comes and then they have success. So um, there's an emphasis is, I think, important um, on the Reformation concept of work done in all work that... Um, your daily efforts have to be with the blessing of Christ. Mm-hmm. And so you get this kind of shift from this kind of medieval concept. You know, I, I've talked about this before where you've got um, people in the church and that's what they do. They pray and that's their job to pray. And they're other doing pe- the godly spiritual They're doing stuff. the spiritual stuff and other people are working and others are fighting. And there's, there's this kind of big envelope of the church, but it's not that the people that are working are really supposed to be caught up within the day to day process of salvation. Cause there's people that pray that do right, that. Right. So you're shifting, um, um, vocation, if you will, because now your work Whatever it is, even your mundane work in the field, even your mundane work as a carpenter, even um, even your work in, like maybe you're working as a scribe or lawyer, all these jobs are ordained by Christ. And interestingly enough, um, I, I recently went to a, a, a series of talks of um, Joel Harrington, um, a, a Reformation scholar, who um, did a lot of research on the executioner. Now, we're thinking about the executioner as being, you know, this completely horrible job, and how could that ever be? Um, <laughs> could that ever be a, a a job that the church is going to recognize as okay? But his his whole book, the faithful executioner, um, life and death, honor and shame, in the turbulent 16th century. Mm. And he talks about that this was actually considered a very honorable job to keep peace. And wow. therefore, even the faithful executioner <laughs> is indeed someone who is doing his role um, with God's blessing. Because wow. So what a strange space, this horrible... And, yeah, I think I might want to push back against that in, in these days. <laughs> and, took, and took his role quite seriously. Um, and, and it's, it's, it's kind of a frightening and of course, gory, horrible book to read. But, um, on the other hand, there's very much a sense of that keeping order was part of Christ's Christ's mission. And so he took his job very much as part of his, uh, religious calling. So anyway, that's a really, that's a really far side, but for most folks, there was then this kind of, um, really development of, of prayers and hymns and, um, and, and books I've talked about before you carry along that you are, you're doing as you're doing your job every day, that your job itself becomes prayer, Mm. which is really, really interesting because this is how, how God has called you to work in society. So, um, and this becomes so big, um, um, that, and, and this idea that your work is also, um, your calling, um, that it it becomes kind of built into what becomes in the Protestant ethic later on, sure. which then of course the Protestant work ethic, and then of course this wealth gained, and then this wealth not spent on anything ostentatious, and so you get this very very big body, and we talk about a lot in Amsterdam in particular with the Reformed tradition, but all throughout, and so you get these really you see it in you see it with the Huguenots in France too, mm. Mm. and so you get these kind of very wealthy Protestants who have expendable wealth because they're not spending it lavishly um and um it it becomes you know you see this if you will 
wealth buildup then in, in these reformed traditions, particularly. I, I find it interesting that that they connected, and I I think this whole you know this whole approach to to the to the vocation of ordinary people, so to speak. I, I agree with it 100%, and I think there are biblical passages that can support that. I find it interesting that they chose to, to bring that in here because, to me, the fact that the fact that they went fishing is something of a disconnect with what comes before, and I think what they're trying to do is, is make it more consistent with with yeah, what comes before. I agree. It, it, it's kind of weird that they this comes out of it. I agree. Mm-hmm. I thought, well, this, this seems to be kind of a stretch, yeah. but... Um, I mean, I, I agree with the with the ideas, and I agree mm-hmm. with the point, but I think there are other biblical passages that where would do you can it better. And do this, that, yeah. and, and, and this is not, um, you know, I'm pointing this out with with one Puritan text, which this wasn't true of all the reformers didn't sure. pull this out of this. Sure. And so I think that's important. Is there? There's a lot of different voices here, but that they did it all. And again, I think it seems that. Unfortunately, the eisegesis is going into this as well. Sure. This kind of desperation to pull out these Reformation themes. Sure. So very interesting. Um, stuff. And then um, um, there's another thing that um, um, Calvin makes note that Jesus, um, so in the appearance, so they've done the, the fish, and then when Jesus appears, that Jesus appears as one of them, not as Lord and Master, which he could mm. have. Um, and so Calvin talks about that continued work um, despite a lack of success, and the work is in itself a work of faith. Mm. So here, yeah, yeah. So the disciples continue to allow God to come in when we least expect it. And I think, I think it might be a nod um, to this belief, this hope that never dies. And as they fish, they hang on to that hope, Mm -hmm. which I think, I think would make sense. You've learned all this stuff from Jesus and you've learned to have hope and you you heard his prediction of, of returning. And so, yeah, to have that hope, that right. sense of hope, um, I think is important. And, and I guess that they've already seen Jesus, you know, because right. we don't exactly know how this fits in right. in, the, in the space. But if it's in itself, if it's supposed to be a first appearance or whatever, but somewhere in their thoughts are, are this idea of hope. So I think that's hmm. interesting as well. Hmm. Um, yeah. Now... Others claim that the actual catching of the fish is an allegory for preaching the gospel. And, and there are still people yeah. today who will say yeah. that that their fishing and, and their catching of this fish, like the number 153 represents all the nations or something yeah. like this. That this is a, that this is a, and these are modern biblical scholars right, who are right, doing this. Right. Yeah. Well, and in other words, work through faith will bring about good fruit. And they went out of the way to note that the disciples did not eat what they had <laughs> caught. <laughs> um, um, but, but that the, indeed that these fish would be present with Jesus and them. So, <laughs> Kind of, yeah. It's kind of, it's kind of strange, but a bit of a stretch, yeah. <laughs> but in other words, um, what nourished them was not what they, not what they caught. According to them, the fish represented those who would be caught and brought to Christ, mm-hmm. and then kind of alluding back to the fishers of men, Surely. kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's some, there's, there's some biblical scholars, modern biblical scholars, who, who make that point too. And again, I. I, you know, I think it's it's almost stretching it. You know, the story is what it is, and and the point of the story is that Jesus reveals Himself. That's what that's what John's Gospel says mm-hmm. that Jesus reveals right, Himself. Right, right, exactly, exactly. Yeah. Now, I'd mentioned earlier how Calvin responded um, to this passage because it was one of the number one 
one passage is used to justify the papacy. Mm-hmm. And um, we see this over and over. And I, I, I have a list of the different papal bulls and pieces that came out that, mm-hmm. that, that say this is one of those passages. So when the Reformation is trying to discredit the papacy, this is obviously going to be a target. And sure. so Calvin... Calvin addresses this several different times in the Institutes where he he's not saying this passage proves this, but he'll say, look, this passage doesn't prove it. And he'll have it with several others that he feels like it's a it's really misusing the passage. So um, I do want to talk about that a little bit because it, it explains a little bit, I think, how um, um, how scripture is misused to to promote certain Sure. certain things and 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 alan did this so well you know but uses this this whole thing of feed my sheep for for this purpose um and um um look he says that um we must understand that here christ did not give peter powers above the rest um and that indeed instead and he quotes first uh, peter um chapter 5 verse 2 that peter exhorts all other presbyters to feed the church so he's suggesting that this is just one of of many examples of those who would be in this kind of priestly role or the priesthood of all believers and that there's going to be these ministers to it so he uses it more to support kind of his vision of church Mm -hmm. leadership as opposed to kind of the roman catholic vision which is yeah, which is what I was doing yeah, as well. Which is you know, what, the, yeah, exactly. Which is what Alan you know, was interpreting, doing as well. interpreting, interpreting the statement to Peter. You know, in light of what Peter says later. Yeah, in exactly. Yeah. Exactly what yeah. Calvin does. <laughs> yeah. And then um, Calvin's argument goes way beyond just Peter as the head of the church, but really the whole situation of the tendency to make Peter another Christ in the church, and therefore redoing the sacrifice that has already been made on our behalf. This is one of the problems with the whole the whole um, sacrament of the Lord's or of the, the whole mass mm-hmm. in the Roman Catholic tradition, they're redoing a sacrifice over and over for the, the real presence um, that has already been done for us once. And we, we hear that a lot in our, our confessions that he died once on the cross. Mm-hmm. We don't need to continue to kill mm-hmm. Jesus. And this was a big deal for Calvin here is that this whole misunderstanding reflected this, this theology of this kind of continued sacrifice on um, this continued doing it, like almost like reflecting the need to continue to sacrifice animals. They need to, consa- you know, mm-hmm. in the Hebrew tradi- Hebrew Bible, well now all of a sudden this continued need to re-sacrifice Christ every every mass and that's not the case at all sure Um, this happened once for our atonement you don't need to continue this process um well and that's that's a that's a i would see that as a as a fairly um solid new testament theme as well you know there there is no repetition of christ's sacrifice right Um, exactly exactly and I, i don't know you know to be fair to catholic theology i don't know what their rationale for that is explicitly, I might, I might venture to guess that um, you know, to some extent, this is related to Christ as example and how Christ, you know, sacrifices Himself for us to s- sort of represent that. I think, I think, I would suggest that's probably it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, mm-hmm. that that that's that's their that's their rationale behind it. But nevertheless, you know that has always been sort of the st- sticking point between between the Roman Catholic tradition absolutely, and, the Ruf- and absolutely, other traditions. Right? Is, you know, that's one of the been one of the main sticking mm-hmm. points between the Catholic tradition mm-hmm. and the Protestant tradition. For Calvin, this passage is more about showing the role of the stewards of the gospel um, to preach and feed the flock 
um, and that this was indeed the call of Peter mm-hmm. and Peter as that example. Um, I, I have a big quote from Calvin, but I think it's a good way for us to end, um, and I like it. Um, and this is from the Institutes, uh, volume four, uh, chapter one, um, verses 26. Um, he says, uh, has this benefit been, had been so taken away from believers by Christ's coming in which the fullness of grace was revealed in order that they dare not pray for a pardon of sins. And if they have offended the Lord, that they may obtain no mercy. What else will this be but to say that Christ has come for the destruction, not the salvation of his people? If God's kindness, which in the Old Testament had been unfailingly ready for the saints for the forgiveness of sins, is now said to be completely taken away? But if we have faith in the scriptures, which expressly proclaim that in Christ the grace and gentleness of the Lord have fully appeared, the riches of his mercy have been poured out, and the reconciliation of God and men fulfilled. Not us, not doubt, that the heavenly Father's clemency flows forth to, to us much more abundantly rather than it is cut off or curtailed. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah, that's, you know, again, as I said, that's always been one of the sticking points between the Roman Catholics mm-hmm. and, the, and the Protestant tradition Absolutely. is that the Eucharist is a, is a representation of the sacrifice exactly. of Christ. Exactly. Yeah. And so I just thought that was... I thought there's a really a, a good way to put this this emphasis that he wants to take from this and this kind of refocusing um, the scripture. What has been that was the main purpose of it in the Roman Catholic tradition. Well, and it's sort of like you know I, I've said this before. You know, people people sometimes look to us as pastors to be their saviors, and I tell people, you know, you already have a savior. That's Jesus. <laughs> I can't I can't do play that role, and and. I mean, to me, that's a that's not just an off the cuff, you know, remark. I mean, it is a serious one that, you know, as 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 um, Calvin said, you know, our role is to feed the flock and not to atone for sins. Only Christ can do that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, yeah. All right. Well, Thanks, thank Christy. You. Hi, everybody. We're back, and I thought we'd talk a little more about, you know, really what's the purpose of this passage. And and I have to say, this has always bothered me a little bit. It it as we talked about, it kind of seems tacked on. Why this passage? Why now? Is it? I, I think my historian's mind that wants it to have some kind of chronological val- validity, and it feels like it takes all these themes from other places. Um, I didn't mention there's a place in there where you know, in our, with our reformers that try to, um, uh, that try to harmonize everything. They try to make this sense within their own kind of, um, chronology and, and claim, well, look, you know, the Holy Spirit comes in acts and to the body of the church. So it's just weird. And I think because it's weird, it's unsettling to me and I kind of just want to skip it. So I, I think Alan, why, why is this here? Do you think? Okay. Yeah, well, I think, I think you know, there are a couple of things that I see coming out of this passage. Um, so obviously, it's another post-resurrection appearance of Jesus. I, I think the editors of the final version of John's gospel were aware 
of this tradition of an appearance to Peter and others in Galilee. And I felt, I think they felt um, sort of um, uh, um, a need to include this in their gospel. Um, now, I will, I will, as an aside, just mention, you know, this isn't the only passage in Luke's, in John's gospel that sort of feels out of place um, or it has been sort of misplaced, so to speak, um, chronolo- chronologically and even perhaps um, in the manuscript tradition. Uh, John chapter 8, uh, the story of the woman caught in adultery, is a, is a passage that's found in a variety of places in the gospel manuscript tradition. It's even found, I think, at the end of Luke 24 in one manuscript. And so, you know, it seems that the final editors of the gospel of John, they they are responsible for the prologue. I think they're responsible for some of the interpretation that that really Mm -hmm. significantly brings in what we've seen already is this apocalyptic element of Mm -hmm. there's a there's a you know you're either light or you're darkness there's no in between and you either believe or you or you disbelieve there's no in between and and sort of that more harsh critical part of the gospel that they bring in but i think they also you know so we have this passage in john chapter eight that 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 you know seems to have settled here in the manuscript tradition and then we have this epilogue and and as I said before, I mean, I think what happened in in the in the early church is that there may have been some written documents that were early. Some people think there was a passion narrative that was written early. Um, and you know, as we've said before, there seems to be some connection between Luke's and John's passion narrative. So mm-hmm, maybe mm-hmm. maybe uh, you know maybe uh, there's an early early common source that Luke and John are sharing. Uh, but there's also oral tradition going on right. out there, and I think I think you know one of the things that the gospel writers were trying to do, they they not only gave their interpretation of Jesus, they were trying to interpret Jesus faithfully, but they're also trying to faithfully pass on the tradition right. that they received. Right. And so I think they're aware of this tradition of Peter's, you know, of Jesus' appearance uh, in Galilee, and especially uh, of of a role of Peter in that. And I think they want to. They want to bear, you know, include that in their witness, and and they don't know where to put put it, and so they put it in this epilogue that feels kind of tacked on, and it does feel kind of tacked on, and it doesn't seem to fit chronologically with the rest of the gospel, but it's there to to bear witness to that tradition. I think that's part of it. Part of the reason is it's bearing witness to something that they were familiar with in the tradition of the church. I think part of it is though, you know. Although we would not agree that Peter became the the representative of Christ and the first pope, you know, Peter clearly played a leading role. I mean, if you read the book of Acts, uh, Peter plays a dominant role in the first part of the book of Acts until Saul's conversion, and then Paul and his missionary missionary journeys, then Paul sort of takes the lead and, and, and plays the dominant yeah, role. Yeah, yeah. But Peter's one of the main leaders yeah, in the sure, church. Of course. And I think, you know, to leave Peter's story sort of hanging in their mind with just a simple generic, you know, the Lord appeared to the, the disciples and said, peace be with you, and as the Father has sent me, so I send you. That didn't seem to be sufficient in their minds in light of Peter's threefold denial of Jesus. Mm. Uh, I think that was quite, in, 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 for, for the editors of John's Gospel, that was really quite a, a betrayal, 
it was perhaps almost an, a, a, similar to apostasy right, right, on right. Peter's part. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And so they felt the need for I, there to be sense. a rehabilitation and a restoration of I Peter. I think that makes a lot of sense because here we're telling these stories. We hear about, yeah, the, he completely denies him, and yet he has this huge role in, and how do you make... How do you follow that? How do you how, how do you connect those dots? Yeah, right? yeah. Well, and that does make some sense to me. Well, um, and it's it's important. I think that Jesus Himself is the one who recommissions Peter. Yes, right? I agree. Jesus Himself agree. is the one who does this. Yeah, because because Jesus was the one who called them in the first place, right? Right. And so it's it sort of I think it sort of reestablishes Peter's position. Um, and, and his legitimacy and his, it sort of revalidates Peter as, as one of the leaders of the early church. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, I, I think on the other hand though, I, I really do see, and I know, you know, it's easy to say, well, Peter, first Peter five, two provides a convenient proof text to be able to say, yeah, Peter says to feed, to, Peter says to all the, all the shepherds of the church to, to feed the sheep. Right. So it's a shared task, but I, I see that as an echo of this encounter with Jesus. Mm-hmm. I think so. And, and so, um, I think we're meant to see that, that this encounter with Peter um, in this, Jesus really makes a big impression, Peter, in terms of what it means to serve the church. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, it's yeah. about feeding the sheep. It's about caring for the flock. And, and I think there's something there that's important that I don't know. I mean, obviously, there are a lot of pastors out there who are faithfully, diligently doing their best to the best of their ability, trying to care for the flock and feed the sheep, you know, and, right. and, 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 and tend them in this way. You know, we all know though, that there, there, there has been some tendency sort of in recent days to, to view uh, the pastoral ministry from a more professional, from a more clinical stand mm-hmm. standpoint. And yeah, we all need to observe healthy boundaries in our, in mm-hmm. our work in past pastors. But um, my, I'm sorry, my relationship with the members of my church is not like that of a, a psychologist with right. his patients or it's, her patients. It, it, no, it's very different. It, it's very different. And I, I, at least I think it is for most people. And first of all, you're not having someone come in for your hour and putting somebody on a clock and being done. I mean, you were basically there. Mm-hmm. Um, it, even, even with boundaries, you're basically there when they need you. I, right. I, I dropped last week someone in in need from whatever other tasks i had just so we could have this spiritual discussion and so i could be uh, i could be in this right place at the right time to help this person and that's that is different than this kind of professional psychological counseling office right well and i even think it's different from the role of a chaplain you know the role of a chaplain is one in which you're dealing with grief and death and dying on such a regular basis that they have to really take a, a stance back and sort of distance themselves from the people they're serving emotionally just to be able to survive that. I don't see that as being appropriate in the pastoral ministry. I mean, obviously, you don't get enmeshed emotionally right. with your people. But um, to me, um, you know, the language that Jesus uses 
of um, of um, um, feed my lambs, right? right. <laughs> Tend my sheep, shepherd my sheep, feed my sheep. You know, th- this is this is language that involves personal interaction. I am always, mm-hmm. I'm often, I'm often drawn back to something Paul said. I believe it's in First Thessalonians chapter two. He says, "We were pleased to share not only the gospel with you, but also our very lives." Right, right. And and I think that's 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 what's going on here. I think that's what Peter sees in this in this commission to shepherd the sheep is that you're you know you care about them. You really do care about them, right. and and you know you your life is involved in their life and is in and interconnected with their life and and you know right. that's what. That's what serving is about. You can't serve from a distance. You can't serve from that right. sort of objective clinical right. point of right. view. Well, yeah, it's it's it reminds you. Or at least it's a different kind of service. It reminds me. Well, I mean, when you're dealing with psychology work, it's a one-on-one. It's in an office. Here, this is more like in a body of Christ. It's like a living, breathing organism, and you are part of that. You know, you're part of the ebb and that flow mm-hmm. and that, I mean, without... You know, without the pastor as a leader, they, they, they kind of wander. I mean, it's just, it's, it's a different relationship um, than anything else. Well, and I liken it to a community, you know, or mm-hmm. a family. And if you use family systems, you know, you, you know that, that um, the health of a pastor can, you know, the health or lack thereof of a pastor can either benefit or adversely affect the health of a congregation. Yes, yes. And, and, and so, you know, th- I think that's another um, sort of way of looking at it, you know, in terms of that system. You become a part of the system when you become the pastor of a church. Yeah. And, and you, know, what, you know, what you do and how you live your life affects them and how they live their life affects you as well. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I see this, this and, and really, I mean, I can't conceive of Jesus as serving the church in a clinical, objectified, distanced way. <laughs> you know, right. the, and and I don't mean I don't mean to pick on on chaplains by any means because I understand they're they're dealing with so many so many heavy emotions on a regular basis on a, a ba- on a daily basis. Mm-hmm. They that's this is this is a practice that they need to be able to maintain right. their own mental and emotional health. That's that's fine, but. Um, I think, and I, I get that that psychologists and 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 different medical professions and things like that they have to keep a certain mm-hmm. right, right, clinical right. distance. Right, right, right. We're in a different space. Yes, I you agree. Know, we, I agree, Be- because we're we are in so many different roles. Right, we're yeah. not just in this counseling role. You know, knock on my door, come in, but rather, but but we're in we're in shaping people in so many different ways and in shaping shaping the whole community, right? We're yep. part of that, we're part of that broad, broad, broad. So, no, I really, this is very helpful for me because I now feel that this has, it doesn't feel as, as awkwardly tacked on, but maybe importantly added, which changes the whole kind of feel. I, 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 I come at this passage with kind of just a, a feeling or as my son would say, a color. And and, a color, mm-hmm. and, and by by this explanation today, it feels better. I feel better mm-hmm. about it. I feel more comfortable with it. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's great. Thanks, Christy. Thanks. That's our podcast for today. If you heard something that was helpful to you, please subscribe to our podcast and tell your friends about us. It's our hope and prayer that our time together might bear fruit in your ministry as you build up the body of Christ. 
We hope you'll tune in next week. And in the meantime, let's keep serving each other as we together listen listen for for the the word. word.